I'm Ted Seides, and this is Private Equity Deals. This show is an exploration of deals in the private markets. Through conversations with private equity managers, we'll dive into individual deals to learn about deal dynamics, companies, and ownership that make private equity a force in institutional portfolios and the global economy. Season one of Private Equity Deals focused on owners you know. Season two focuses on companies you know. You can keep up to date and join our mailing list at capitalallocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of capital allocators or guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. In the third episode of season two of Private Equity Deals, David Shapiro discusses TaylorMade. David is a co-founder of KPS Capital, a three-decade-old private equity firm that manages in excess of $14 billion with a focus on acquiring and improving manufacturing-based businesses. TaylorMade is one of the leading manufacturers of golf equipment and a familiar brand to golfers and fans of the game. Our conversation covers the history of TaylorMade, desired spin-off of the business from Adidas, prolonged and broken deal process, and KPS's winning the deal. We then turn to the steps KPS took to improve the business across its supply chain, product cycle, and marketing, and its decision to sell the business in 2021 after a complete turnaround. Please enjoy my conversation with David Shapiro discussing TaylorMade. David, great to see you. Nice to see you, Ted. Thanks for having me. So we're going to dive into this tailor-made deal. Why don't we, for context, just give a little bit on KPS's background. KPS Capital Partners is a private equity fund focused on manufacturing. We only invest in companies that make a product. So that can be anything from a golf club or a golf ball or an auto part or a coil of steel. So the whole gamut of anything that gets made. So it's a pretty broad group, but it does fall into the industrial manufacturing sector always. Most of our deals lately have been what I would call corporate carve-outs, probably two-thirds of them. Our history is really in turnarounds and restructuring. So to go back a little bit, I'm one of the co-founders along with Mike Paceros and Gene Kalin, the K, the P, and the S. We started working together actually in 1991, and we had a restructuring advisory business. And then in 1997, after doing that restructuring work for about five or six years, we realized something that was really missing in that area, which was capital. There was a real market inefficiency. No private equity, no interesting kind of investors really wanted to play in that space other than what I'll call senior secured lenders. Wherever there's a lack of capital, there's probably going to be an opportunity. And we also felt that the manufacturing sector in the US, which was very much out of favor and kind of always is out of favor, I think, (laughs) but certainly in the late 80s into the early 90s, our view was and continues to be that the US is always going to have robust manufacturing. So there should be a lot of opportunities for us and we'll have a relatively clear playing field because no other equity firms want to play there. Our strategy was invest in troubled manufacturing businesses and focus on controllable costs and things where we know we can make a difference. So don't count on revenue growth. Don't count on market bailout. Count on the things that you know that you can control. As we became more sophisticated or better at being private equity investors, 
we sort of expanded the universe of companies that we would look at. We went from what I would call strict focus on cost and controllable cost to starting to think a little bit more strategically. And what got us to that point was we would fix these troubled businesses and then we would just sell them because we're like, ah, we're done. We did our job. We would sell them and then we would see what other people would do with those businesses. So we started thinking, okay, we're doing the hard work and they're doing the fun work. So in certain circumstances, why don't we marry those two together? And then also started expanding geographically outside of US and Canada to include Western Europe. We've learned a tremendous amount in 25 years. We all have a real passion for this work. It's been a lot of fun. Before we dive into TaylorMade, I'd love to ask you about the market for these manufacturing-based deals, particularly over the last decade and the last couple of years when so much has gone to capital light type businesses. What's happened in the environment for these types of deals? The one thing that continues to be true is there's just a limited pool of investors who are really interested in this sector. So that hasn't changed. What has changed is the way that the manufacturing sector in the US has stayed relevant and stayed robust is by technology. It used to be that you'd go to a steel mill and there'd be 10,000 people working there. Now you go to a steel mill that makes the same amount of steel and maybe there's 600 or 400 or something like that. So you have significant increases in productivity that have occurred, which is for the good of everyone. It really eliminates the most difficult and painful and in some ways unsafe jobs. So that's been a real positive. And it also allows for the average wages in those industries to go up fairly considerably, which has happened as well. But as far as the pricing, I don't think that that's moved so much. I think that there's certainly some, what I'll call subsectors that are more attractive to investors than others. Anything tied to electric vehicles was something that caught a lot of people's attention and the multiples there started looking a lot like software multiples, which we weren't used to seeing or we're not used to seeing. Otherwise, I think the what I'll call the good old manufacturing businesses in terms of overall valuations generally haven't moved dramatically the way some other valuations do. So let's talk about TaylorMade. What is this company? So TaylorMade is a golf equipment company, and that is really all it is. It makes it very, I think, simple to describe, which is they make golf clubs. Since it sounds so simple to say that I got to at least divide golf clubs into a couple of different types of golf clubs. So you have metal woods, which are drivers and fairway woods and hybrids and things of that sort. That's where TaylorMade really came into existence in the 1970s as one of the first companies to actually go from being an old school literal wood club to a metal wood. That is a big part, probably 35, 40% of the business. Then there's iron. So good old fashioned three irons through pitching wedges. There are wedges. So there's like four or five different types of wedges that you might have. And there are putters, obviously. And then there's golf balls. So those are the big categories which everybody else would just say, oh, well, that's just golf stuff. And then some of the smaller categories are things like accessories where they'll make gloves and hats and golf bags and things of that sort. That's been the TaylorMade business from the get-go. TaylorMade for many years was independent. Then it was owned by Solomon and then it was owned by Adidas or Adidas is the proper way to say. When we first started looking at the company and they kept saying Adidas, we're like, I've been wearing Stan Smith's for 40 years and it was always Adidas. And they're like, no, there was actually a guy and his name was Adi Dossler. And so it's called Adi Das. But I still have a hard time saying it. So Adi owned it from 1997 on. So what did happen in the lead up to your looking at the deal? There was the go-go years of golf, if you will. 
you've got to look at one man to explain how that happened, which is Tiger Woods, and really changed the way everybody in the world perceived the game of golf. And it went from being a stodgy old man's game to something much more athletic and interesting. And that led to a lot more people paying attention to golf, which led to a lot more people buying golf equipment, which led to more participants in the golf equipment world and bringing in the likes of Nike and Adidas, where before that, you would just have the very particular golf brands there. So you had some very good years in the golf industry leading up to call it 2013, 14, around there. And then the interest just started to wane. The view was it was sort of a declining sport, that it was back to being an old person's game and that the demographics weren't really lining up well for the future and that there was not going to be any meaningful growth there. So what some companies did, and I would say Adi was one of them, is they said, okay, well, we're going to just sell more stuff somehow. We need to sell things. So we're going to boost share. So what they did, which is the lesson for all businesses, I think, is that especially when, you know, a consumer product like golf clubs, they shortened the product cycle dramatically. So new products were coming out way too frequently. And it's one thing if you have a huge technological leap that comes with each new generation, but they were basically repainting it and putting a different name on it and then putting it back out in the market again. And that was a prescription for disaster. What ends up happening is you end up flooding the market with the first product and then you've got your next one coming. So you've got to discount the last one before the next one gets there. So your margins take a big hit. Consumers get used to the idea that says, well, if I just wait four months, I'll be able to get that metal wood for 50% off. So I'll just wait. So kind of what I'll call a virtuous circle going the wrong way happened. I think TaylorMade was one of the worst offenders of that, but I think all of the golf companies did a little bit of it. So you had generally so-so demand in the market, a sense that golf wasn't really growing. And then you had the manufacturers acting what they thought was rationally from a micro perspective, but from a macro perspective was quite irrational. So at that same time, you had a couple big announcements that happened that cemented the market's view that golf was really kind of a declining industry or sport. You had a couple pretty high profile bankruptcies on the retail side. Golf Smith went bankrupt. Sports Authority went bankrupt, which while it was more broadly into sporting goods, they had a bunch of golf. Then there were a couple small equipment manufacturers that went bankrupt. Then Nike made an announcement that they were going to stop with the equipment side. When they signed Tiger Woods way back at what I'll call the turn of the century, they went from being just a sneaker and apparel company to being a golf equipment maker, fully because of Tiger Woods. They signed up a bunch of pretty good athletes, but they never had more than 2 or 3% of the market. And they, I think, rightly decided to exit golf equipment. And then at the same time, Adidas decided to do the same thing. You have a couple bankruptcies. You have a couple of the biggest sporting goods names deciding to get out of golf, I think, which sort of made everybody feel like, oh boy, this is not going to be pretty in the future. So as this gets ugly, you've got Sports Authority going under, you've got Adidas looking to spin this off. What was attractive about it to you? The first thing I got to say, just from a personal level, I like golf. And all kidding aside, some companies are more fun to look at than others. Even if this wasn't the right deal, I would have taken a look at it just because I'm curious about a lot of different industries and certainly curious about how the golf business works. But that said, anytime you have a brand that has the reputation that TaylorMade had, even that, in spite of the mistakes it made in the market and all that, 
It still was absolutely one of the top four brands in the world. It was owned by a soft goods company. And for us, when we see mismatches between what I'll call core competencies of companies and then non-core assets, those are the best ones for us to take a look at. And Adi or Nike, they're great at certain things, but making hard goods, golf equipment, isn't one of them. It's an unnatural act for them. So that combination of things was intriguing. And also the idea that if everyone is thinking golf is dying, it's probably a good time to start looking at golf. The KPS way of thinking is a little contrarian in that way. The whole manufacturing in the 80s and 90s, everybody thinks it's dying and we think that's an opportunity. Same way here, golf wasn't going to die. It may not grow the way pickleball is growing right now, but golf's not going anywhere. And so if you can run that business well, and there are a bunch of marginal players in the industry that probably should be consolidated out, I felt that there was a real opportunity there. When we actually got the numbers, it was a bit stunning when we saw how bad they were actually doing. How bad was it? It was shocking. They had gone from a little over a billion in sales and a little over 100 of EBITDA. The worst year, which I think was 2015, which was the year that they decided to go and try to sell the company, they were down below 600 million of sales and the EBITDA loss was pushing 200 million. Pretty staggering. Many people looked at that and just said, no, not fixable. How did you do your due diligence on it? We do what we always do. We sort of focus on the key drivers of the business. We spend as much time as we can with management, understanding how they think about the business. If we don't have a ton of experience in a particular industry, we'll bring in some help to think about the market and the growth prospects. And we did that here. And it was interesting. You can commission surveys now pretty easily. And it was sort of fun to you, know, you design a survey, force rank these 10 attributes of clubs when you're going to buy a golf club. Some things just pop out at you immediately that one thing that nobody admits is that they care which pros play those golf clubs. That was out of 10 items, almost universally, that was 10. No one wants to admit that like I buy a club because Roy McElroy plays it because that seems ridiculous, but it really does move the needle. These guys make a difference. And that was a tricky thing for us to get our heads around is how do you value those sponsorships and those relationships? How do you quantify it? How should you think about it? How important is it? How many do you need? all of those types of things. But back to how did we do the diligence? When you see a company that lost that much revenue that quickly, there's a couple of questions. First is why? And then second is what did they do to try to offset it or fix it? And what often happens is that their infrastructure lags reality by a couple of years. You're still built to be a over billion dollar revenue business, but you're now 600 million and you carry the same overhead and the same fixed costs and all of that. You had Adi making big decisions about what they could do and how they would price that were a couple steps removed from the market. So I think that's where they got in some trouble. A lot of it was pricing, where they really got in that cycle that I was describing before of, okay, well, how do we drive revenue? Well, we have more new products. Okay, let's get new products out every six months. Okay, but we're stuck with so much inventory, we have to discount it. So what should be a high 40s gross margin business at the club level is suddenly you're down in the low 30s or mid 30s because you're having to discount so heavily to move inventory. So partly we were trying to figure out, is there some combination of what I'll call stopping bad behavior, right-sizing the cost structure, and just the benefit of carving it out from this 
soft goods company. Are those pieces going to be enough to turn this from a big money loser into something profitable that we can get a return out of? So that's where we focused our time. And how'd you get comfort with each of those three key issues? The big one was really the product cycle thing. The good news is that a guy named David Abelis, who had worked at TaylorMade earlier in his career, was brought back by Adi in 2015 to help rethink the business and then also to sell it. So David, although he had worked there in the past, wasn't what I would call burdened with the justification of bad decisions, which sometimes happen. If it was on my watch, I have to explain why I did that. And he was very much in the same mindset of how do we do this? He's a very marketing oriented guy. And I would say that we tend to be more what I'll call cost structure oriented. And that combination was actually very good because he could temper some of our instincts in terms of reducing certain expenditures. And we would temper some of his instincts in terms of making significant expenditures. So it's actually a very good combination. A lot of stuff like that has to do with the quality of the information that you're getting. If you don't have good information flowing between your sales force and the market and your supply chain and the guys who are actually making the product, you're going to end up with weird imbalances that cause you to do bad things in the market. So part of it was really putting in place systems and structures where the information was flowing in the right way so that you were making ordering decisions from suppliers based on actual market feedback, as opposed to, hey, this is going to be a great launch. Let's order 10 million M5 drivers and hope for the best. If you improve the quality and the timing of information, it sort of puts you in a better position to make proper decisions. So all these things build on each other. As we started seeing all the pieces through the diligence process, we did get comfortable that there was a business plan here that made sense, even without what I'll call incremental growth in the market. We felt that TaylorMade was underweighted in certain of these subcategories. For example, golf balls, totally dominated by Titleist. TaylorMade, when we got there, had something like 3% share in the golf ball business, but they had a very high quality ball. They just were not putting money behind marketing it and getting it out there. So we felt there was an opportunity there. Same thing with putters. We felt that the technology that TaylorMade had on the shelf was actually quite good and that there was some real opportunities to pick up share in the future. And that was a pretty fun thing. So you talk about interesting diligence sessions. They were extremely sensitive about what point in the process they were going to essentially open the curtain and let us see what was in the cupboard for the future, because that is sort of the crown jewels. That was one of the all-time great presentations where you get to sit there and full day sort of walk through product line by product line, year by year, what those launches look like. TaylorMade just came out with their Stealth 2 Metalwoods, the second generation of the Stealth family, and there's some technological improvements and so forth. As a consumer, you're like, wow, this is the state of the art. This is the best thing that there is. This is awesome. As the owner of that company, you know that there are four generations coming up behind it that are more technologically this, that, and the other thing. And we would always laugh because if you look back at all of the marketing for golf equipment companies, each time a new driver in particular comes out, it's like it goes farther, it goes farther. And on average, it gets the average guy an extra seven yards. We're sort of laughing at some point. You're like, okay, well, that's been going for 20 years. So that means that if you've got seven yards each of 20 years, guys should be literally hitting the ball a mile (laughs) right now. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fine line between there are actual for real improvements there. And then there's the marketing that obviously you put around it to make it appealing. You mentioned that Adidas went to sell this in 2015. 
but you didn't buy it until 2017. What was going on in those two years? It was wild. In the end, it all turned out for the better for us. We first heard about it at the end of 2015. Audi put out an announcement that they're considering strategic options for their golf business and you know what that means. So we got our antenna up. They hired Guggenheim partners to do the sale process. And our coverage guy there spoke to us pretty early about it, gave us a heads up. And we said, absolutely, we're interested in hearing more about it. I think the confusing part for them was they weren't quite sure what they were selling. Are you selling this high quality, premium branded business? Are you selling a turnaround? Are you selling it with a management team? Are you trying to tuck it into some other kind of an enterprise? So they weren't quite sure who the target market was. They went very broadly. And when I say very broadly, I think they would have sent a book to anybody who asked, and they probably reached out. I know they reached out to well over a hundred different buyers all over the world because it's also, it's a global business. So the sense was golf is very big in Japan. It's very big in Korea. It's very big in European countries. So go everywhere. So they did that. And I think what ended up happening was they would get feedback throughout the process that made them feel like some party or someone was really excited about it. And then they would sort of focus on that party. So it was very much not your disciplined three-step process where here's the book, send in an IOI. Okay. We'll take 10 of you into the next round, management presentation, boom, boom, boom. Next level bid due in a month and a half. And then we'll narrow it down to two people and move on. This went on for a year and a half. By the time they were in the market, it was probably early 2016. We were in and out a couple different times. We stayed pretty true in terms of our view on valuation and structure. Apparently there were some parties out there that were kind of all over the place and they would pursue them. And then at some point there was a change in the CEOs of Adidas and the new guy came in and he's like, I just need to be done with this. I'm making money hand over fist in the apparel and footwear business. Yeah, every time I get on an analyst call, I'm talking about this golf equipment business that's kind of irrelevant to us overall but it's losing money. So that's all they want to talk about. By the time he came in, the minds had focused on saying, we need to find a buyer who can actually execute and let's get this done. There was a guy named Andy Tausig who was a former Lehman guy. He sort of had that early 80s banker feel to him. Andy had one of the lines I'll always remember as he was trying to talk us into doing this. He's like, you know what, David, you can't be $50 million too smart here. It's all going to work out. It's all going to be fine. Don't try to cut it too close. And in the end, he was actually right. What did the financials look like of the business when you bought it? Well, the good news of this thing lingering the way it did is under David's leadership, Abley's, who came in in mid-2015, they started to stop doing some of the bad things, which really started to make a difference. If they'd lost close to $200 million in 2015, by the time you got to 2017, they were more like $50 million negative. That was good to see. Their first generation of their M series came out around that time, and it was very successful, sort of validated the technology and their marketing story that they would put behind it. We signed the deal with them in May of 2017, and then we closed in October. By the time we closed, it was getting much closer to break even. It was probably barely 10 or $15 million negative. So it was sort of good that it lingered as long as it did. It also gave us a chance to really see how the management team performed up close. When you have a three-month window in an M&A process, you barely get to get any sense of if people actually can hit their numbers. When you're at it for almost two years, 
it's hard to hide <laughs> at that point. You either hit it or you didn't hit it. And they actually did a pretty good job. So how do you think of pricing that deal? That's a great question because there were no earnings, right? Even on the asset side, I would describe it as an asset light business. Most of the manufacturing is contracted with suppliers. They obviously have a headquarters. They do have a ball making facility and they obviously carry a bunch of working capital. The way that we thought about it was, okay, it's been losing a bunch of money, but when you normalize it for what we feel highly confident we can do, what does that stream of cash flow start to look like? And how should we think about valuation in light of that? We started coalescing around a number in the neighborhood of 400 million. The idea was we were purchasing this thing in the neighborhood of the working capital value. And importantly, you couldn't finance this business. There was obviously no cash flow, so there was no syndicated loan market. They did have inventory and receivables, so you could borrow some money on that. But we viewed that part of the capital structure as what I'll call working capital. So there's a big swing seasonally in this business. So you want to have a facility that allows you to breathe up and down. We went to audience and said, okay, look, we'll put up X of equity here. And then the rest of it, you guys have to do. So you have to take a seller note back and then we'll give you an earnout. And if we exceed certain measures in the forecast, then we'll pay out on the earnout. If not, you won't get that. And initially they didn't like that. And then they came around to it. So we put up 175 million of cash for the deal. Adi gave us about a hundred million dollar note. And then there was an earnout, and that was it. So at the end of that two-year process, were you competing in that bid or were you the last one standing? Oh, we were the last one standing. I like to think that they loved us. They wanted to sell it to us. I think the management team truly came around to really supporting our bid and enjoyed working with us. But I think from Adi's perspective, they wanted someone who was not going to screw things up because there was a lot of interconnectedness between the core Adi apparel footwear business on the golf side and the TaylorMade Golf Company. So it had to be somebody who they trusted could handle the separation and set this business up to be an independent business. That was a key part of it. But I also think that as we saw in the first year and a half of the process, it always felt like somebody from somewhere was about to throw a billion dollars at them and they would chase that billion dollars. And then, like I said, when the new CEO came in, they focused a bit more. And I think they realized that getting the last dollar here isn't the most important thing, but making sure this gets done effectively, efficiently, and with the buyer that's not going to embarrass us, that's more important. Because again, they had put the Adidas golf footwear and apparel business together with TaylorMade, but they obviously weren't going to sell that to us. So we had to take the whole thing out of Adidas. Then we had to put back the apparel footwear business. And you know there was shared distribution, there was shared salespeople, there was shared everything. It was a little bit complicated. In the end, we had something like close to 500 contracts that we had to manage through. Some of them were transition services. There were all the athlete contracts were shared contracts. So we had to split some of those things up and allocate how much Adi was paying them and how much TaylorMade was paying him and all that kind of stuff. So it was messy and it took a long time to get it right. When we closed in October, our transition services ran for 18 months after that, where we had shared distribution and things of that sort. So once you bought the golf equipment business, there's a series of things you talked about. Maybe we can walk through of what you did, starting with that manufacturing supply chain expertise that you guys have. They had one manufacturing facility in South Carolina where they made balls, and then everything else was contracted out. They were all Asian suppliers. And the general approach that they would have was, we're going to design this thing 
And then when we are comfortable with what the design is, we're going to throw it over to the manufacturers. Then we're going to order 2 million of them. And then we're going to take delivery of them and we're going to distribute them the way we want to distribute them. What we did was we worked with them to actually integrate the supply chain way back into really the product development process. So that while you're actually thinking about the product that you're going to come out with and the design for it, you're also making sure about that you can manufacture it at scale, how you're going to get the materials and how many of them you're going to need and really get a much better sense of what it's going to cost to actually make the product. So that was a big part. I think integrating forward and backwards with the supply chain and making them much more part of the team, if you will, treating them really like own suppliers, holding them to metrics in terms of productivity, safety, quality that you do with your own plants, but they were not doing with the supply base. So we would actually have with them some KPS folks that would go in some of the suppliers and work with them on different continuous improvement projects, work with them on safety and Interestingly enough, at KPS, we have an award that we give to one company in the portfolio each year that is actually two things. It's most improved on safety and it's just overall safety metrics. And by the second and third years we own TaylorMade, they won the best safety metrics across the whole of the company, including its supply base. So they took it very seriously and things like that really start to make a difference and have an impact on the culture and the way people think about the business. And that really leads to kind of good decision-making and tends to lead to better quality and better on-time delivery. Another one was that, you know, this was a division of a very big company. So what happens with divisions of big companies? They tend not to have sophisticated finance departments. They tend not to manage cash. They tend not to focus on working capital matters. And that was very much the case here. When they needed money, they'd pick up the phone and call Germany, and Germany would yell at them and send them money. What we needed was a real, true, standalone finance department that was sophisticated and global. I mean, this is a company that half their sales are outside of North America, all over the world. So ultimately, we brought in a new CFO, and we really built de novo a very sophisticated tax function, cash management function, control function. We moved the cash conversion cycle up like 25 days in two years. So a big difference in terms of freeing up cash. And that's partly the people, but it's also getting the right systems in place. So again, you're carrying the right levels of inventory as opposed to saying, I never want to be short on any kind of golf club, no matter what the skew is. So I'm going to have a whole bunch of them. So they were always historically carrying way too much inventory. What did you and David do with that new product cycle that had been just too accelerated for the market? just elongated it some. And the real pressure on it was, if you're going to come out, you need to prove that there's something about that club that makes it different enough that you can build a story around it and that you're going to be able to engage consumers and get them to want to buy it. One was just extending it a bit just time-wise. And then two was having the discipline to just make sure that you really are building a story around it. And I will say the TaylorMade guys are awesome storytellers. That's one of those areas where we looked at what they were doing in terms of the digital content and the stuff they were putting out in the media. And we're like, okay, we're not even going to touch this. We're going to watch it because it's fun to watch, but this is not something that we're going to add value to. We'll let you guys go do what you do there. You mentioned that the average golfer, even if they don't want to admit it, wants to play the clubs that the pro is playing, maybe the same thing with the ball. You mentioned the ball had just 3% market share. What did you do 
to try to drive volume growth or market share growth on both the clubs and the balls? At a base level, you'd have to have the product that you can tell the story behind. The product has to be good. You can't fake your way with smart marketing if the basic product is not really good. TaylorMade had, like I said, a stocked cupboard of technology coming out. The golf ball was a very good golf ball that they just never pushed. They never put their resources behind it. They'd always just sort of looked at Titleist and said, we can't compete. They have 55% market share in the segment of the ball world where you want to have it. And they have all the pros. And it's really kind of true that Pro V1s, which is Titleist's sort of flagship ball, even mediocre, lousy golfers who can't tell the difference, they're like, oh yeah, I have to hear Pro V1. Part of it was one, making sure we had the product and then putting it out there in the right way and getting the players to talk about it and putting marketing money behind it. And again, developing the story and then having the capacity to continue to make those balls and get them to market on time. One of the things that TaylorMade did fairly early, they had a couple big signings of athletes, obviously with Tiger and with Rory. Tiger didn't switch to the TaylorMade ball, but Rory McIlroy did. And in his first news conference, when he was explaining why he really focused on the ball, it was pretty impressive. He is so smooth. But the way that he did it was really brilliant in terms of like, this is why I did this. This is the best ball. I'd been playing this other ball and now gives you technical reasons why he liked it and things like that. We also signed Ricky Fowler for a ball contract, not the overall equipment contract, but just the ball. He has a huge following. And one of the things overall that we did was we took a look at the universe of marketing spend on athletes and working with the management team completely flipped the approach. In prior years, they were very focused on what you would call driver count. So how many drivers are in play at the waste management tournament this week, and we want to be able to say we have the most. So they'll pay anybody, as long as they're in that tournament, they'll pay you to use that club. And so they had, I can't remember what the number was, they like 400 or something like that under contract. And you know they weren't moving the needle. So what we did was said, no, we're going to reduce the spend in absolute terms, but more importantly, we're going to flip it to people who actually move the needle. And what we focused on and the team at TaylorMade focused on was really social media following. Instead of just saying who seems to have the biggest name or who's the biggest draw on TV, it's like, okay, who actually has the biggest audience on Instagram or Facebook or wherever it is? And let's focus on those guys and then drive a lot of the material through them directly to consumers. That's had a big impact. So a lot of the dollars that TaylorMade ultimately spends really is content that gets pumped out through the social media of their athletes as opposed to just putting it on the Golf Channel or CBS or something like that. What were some of the other key initiatives that you did with the company during your period of ownership? A big one too was just the thinking about scale and marketing spend. When you own like a steel mill or something like that, you don't spend a lot of money on marketing. When you own a golf club company, you spend a lot of money on marketing. So our initial look was, oh my God, this is a kind of an insane amount of money. <laughs> what are you doing? The reality was when we bought it, it was an insane amount of money. It was 20% of revenue. You can't do that. As the company shrunk on the revenue side, they didn't reduce their spend much. We had them focus on both the absolute dollar spend, but also as a return on dollars spent. Like, are you getting incremental revenue for the dollars you're spending? So what happened by the time we sold the business, that 20% of revenue for marketing was down to 11%. 
obviously revenue went up dramatically, but we managed to not just keep marketing from growing, but we actually kept it down. And one of the things that's pretty funny, in one of the early meetings, their head of marketing, a guy named Bob Maggiore, was left to have to defend why they're spending 20% of their revenue on marketing. And I sort of said offhand, like, boy, that's a big pinata for us. I got to tell you, Bob. And so that was always sort of the joke was that his marketing budget was a pinata. When we closed, Bob sent me this actual <laughs> pinata of a little tailor-made guy filled with teas instead of candy. We're going to have to get a picture of that for our show notes or something like that. Another thing which was very stagnant for many years was the commercial side, which is pricing. And there was a real fear of breaking certain thresholds. A driver, you stop at 399 or some level like that, and you cannot get people to pay more than that. We pushed very hard saying, look, you've been held at that price for five years now. You're adding all this technology. You're putting this great story behind it, yet you're continuing to sell it at a price. How do you know how elastic the market is here? And so under our time of ownership, you know, the top driver went from under 500 to well over 600. That's all margin right there. The key drivers was a combination of the discipline in terms of your product cycle and making sure that you're not discounting. So we probably picked up 10 margin points in terms of just reducing the discounting that had to happen because we had too much product in the system. That pricing, supply chain management, information flow, all really key foundational points of how this business became better. And then once you have those foundations right, we were able to, again, focus on building ball market share, focus on what we felt where we were underrepresented geographically. So we were powerful in North America, but we were underrepresented in Korea. So we started putting resources into Korea, into Japan, and started building the international business as well. And then the other thing was e-commerce, which was around 3% of sales when we got there and you know was pushing 15% by the time we left. And obviously the margins on the direct-to-consumer are five to 10 points better than going through normal wholesale channels. So when you add up all of those changes, what happened to the financial performance of the business? It changed dramatically. When we were selling, the EBITDA was pushing towards 200. 2015, it was somewhere in the minus 150 to 200 range. And then end of 2021, looking at 2022, you were positive 200. So a massive, massive change. The market flipped. And we haven't talked about the impact of COVID, which was not insignificant. So we went from in March of 2020, we literally didn't sell anything. Everybody was absolute panic. March and April, I can't remember what the actual dollar number was, but the sales were shockingly low. So we were concerned about viability. And then suddenly everybody wanted to do outdoor sports and socially distanced sports and things of that sort. And we went from being nervous about, can we sell anything to, oh my God, ramp up the supply chain. We need product, get product out as fast as you can. So there was a big pickup in 2020. And the question everybody obviously asks is, okay, well, does that sustain? And the answer is obviously that growth rate doesn't sustain, but the game of golf is in really good shape. And I think that there were a bunch of people who came back to golf during the pandemic who had left it and others who had never played it who said, you know what, this is actually a pretty great game and it's kind of fun to be outside for three, four hours and walk around. And so I think there'll be a nice steady growth 
And the most interesting thing is that you had the baby boomers who are aging into retirement, which is when you have people playing the most golf. But at the same time, a whole new generation, because of, I think, COVID was people in their 20s exposed to golf and will pick it up for the rest of their lives. And that's just good for the game. So you did this incredibly heavy lift over the four years, completely turned around this business. And we don't want to say it this way, but now you had the opportunity to just ride some of that growth that you were talking about earlier, but you chose to sell the business. So what was the decision-making and going into selling? One is that we really try hard not to fall in love with our companies. We've become obviously very attached to the businesses, to the people. And particularly this one for me was a little bit of a passion thing with the game of golf, but we also know what our jobs are here. And our jobs are to get the returns back to our investors at the right time. And the right time is always sooner is better. We looked at what was going on. We looked at where the numbers were. We looked at just historically how golf brands cycle a little bit. So one minute, Callaway's on top, and then they ride it out for a couple of years, and then TaylorMade's up, then Tidelist's up. Our view was by the time we were into 2021, TaylorMade had had three really strong years, and the company was in great shape. The brand was in great shape. The products that were due to come out were really good. Our view was let's not try to hold on to this too long. We've got a huge success here and there should be real interest in the market for someone to buy this. So why don't we take it out? And so we did. We hired Morgan Stanley at the end of 2020 and went into the market in 2021. And what did you find when you went into the market? It was still very much in that, okay, COVID bump. What happened here? Is this all about COVID? Am I going to look like an idiot because in 2022, everything's just going to reverse? So you had a bunch of people who were cautious. I think you also had others who would look at what we paid for it and say, all right, these guys paid less than $400 million and now I'm looking at what? So I think you had some people who didn't want to be on the other side of that kind of a trade, just a little uncertainty about what was coming. So I would say that we didn't have as much intense interest as we hoped. We had a lot of initial interest and then as we narrowed it down, there were only a couple parties that were really what I would call gung-ho on owning the asset. And so how'd you maximize the value of your sale in that process? I think by running a, a pretty disciplined process. And also, I was very much prepared if we didn't like where the value was coming out to hold the business longer. I mean, we had recap proposal from our banker where we could have had a realized four times return just by doing a recap on it. And felt very confident that you know, if we had to hold it, we could do just fine. So we were disciplined about that. And we managed to have a couple parties in the process who bumped up against each other. And at the end, we all felt very good as to where the value ended up. We haven't put out the actual numbers and are reluctant to do so, but they're out there. I just don't want to say them. It was a really good outcome for us. I think there were parties out there when we were looking at TaylorMade at the beginning who wondered what were we doing there? Like, why was KPS in there? These are the hardcore manufacturing guys. What are they doing in this branded business? They're going to get clobbered or they're doing it just because they like golf or something like that. And so it was very satisfying to us to say, no, no, this was a good old fashioned turnaround. And by the way, we've done a bunch of consumer businesses. And last time I checked, consumer products actually have to be made somewhere. They are manufacturers too. It's just a different end market. So very satisfying to us. It was funny. I had one guy who runs a private equity firm that looked at it and he said, yeah, you know, 
liked it, but I was afraid that if we did this, it would be perceived as a vanity project by our investors. It was such a mess that we just didn't want to take it on. I loved hearing that. And from our perspective, we felt that we had put together a business plan that if we, working with the management team, made the right moves, we could turn this into a very successful investment. And then it got turbocharged a bit by the strength in the market, which we obviously didn't anticipate. David, what was your biggest lesson learned from this deal? Know what you know and give space for the areas that you don't. And that's why I feel like the working with the TaylorMade team, it was such an effective partnership where I looked at what they were doing on the marketing side and the product development side, right? Those are not things that we're going to naturally weigh in on. You could just say, oh, well, I know this or I have an opinion about that. Our view was, no, you know what? These guys have proven to be really good at these types of things. So what we'll help them with are the areas where we can really be helpful. So we're not going to help them design a new golf club, but we're going to help them think about and put in place a process for product development that actually is way more efficient than what they're doing. And it's going to get product to market more quickly. So we sort of gave them their area and let them focus on that. And they completely were open to our input and advice on all the areas where we felt most competent and had the strongest opinions. Those combinations are sort of what you look for in an investment and in a working relationship with the management team, which is sort of a mutual respect and understanding as to who knows best about what types of issues and things. All right, David, one last question for you. What's your favorite aspect of private equity? I gotta be variety. I love this business. I can look at any business that makes something. It's just exciting to be able to look at that kind of variety of businesses and also to feel like after doing this for 25 years, that we at KPS have sort of developed an approach to investing in these types of businesses that really has been proven to work and that is applicable, whether it's golf clubs or auto parts, it kind of works. I love that. And I love the aspect of working with different management teams, getting to know them well. And then also my partnership here has just been phenomenal over so many years of working with these people. It's family. The private equity business for me has been totally a life-changing and wonderful aspect. David, thanks so much for sharing this really fun and successful story at TaylorMade. My pleasure, Ted. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. 